So over the, the years that we've spoken, I've always respected that in your father of the internet role, you still have a sense of duty, responsibility for where we're at now. And I wanted to shift for a moment and talk about the other area that you're really involved in, which is the long-term preservation of digital information. Um, archiving, access to old records. Tell us more about so that. I, I, I have been, first of all, I am not the only father of the internet, and I want to make sure that you understand I know that. Um, in fact, if you have children, you will have learned that it's very smart not to take too much credit when they do well, so when they screw up, you don't have to take too much blame. <laughs> I have had a lot of help in getting the internet off the ground, and I refuse to accept total responsibility for all the bad stuff that happens on the net. <laughs> Uh, in fact, it's worth observing that human nature hasn't changed a bit in the last 400 years, which is why we're still reading Shakespeare uh, and um, um, discovering all the foibles of human nature as a result. So um, coming back to preservation, though, um, for a long time we had media that were remarkably resilient over time. I was in the British Museum yesterday and I was in the Babylonian and Mesopotamian sections looking at some of the cuneiform tablets, which had not been intended to last as long as they have. Many of them were warehouse records that were written on soft clay and then just simply allowed to dry. But the warehouses burned down and baked the tablets and turned them into something that really lasted for 5,000 years. And they're very uh, you know, informative if you can still read cuneiform, which is not something that most of us have learned, but there are a few people who can do that. I want you to think cuneiform and software uh, as being sort of comparable in this discussion, because as you think about um, the media that we've used, we've used vellum, it's sheepskin, calfskin, that stuff lasts a thousand years or more. If you've ever looked at an illuminated manuscript from 1000 AD, it's still as startlingly magnificent as it was when it was first painted if the, if the manuscripts had been carefully uh, taken cared for. But um, even though that's an extremely resilient medium, um, it doesn't look like it's the best way to record digital content. Besides, a lot of sheep would have to die, so that would be terrible. Um, the problem with digital media is that they don't have anything like the longevity of these other printed uh, materials. So uh, some of you may still have five and a quarter inch floppy disks gathering dust somewhere along with their three and a quarter inch buddies uh, and maybe even a CD-ROM or three um, for which you may have trouble finding a reader. And so that's the problem. The hardware, the bits may still be there. I mean, they might go away. I mean, a polycarbonate CD-ROM probably won't last more than 20 years or so. Um, and seven-track tape, seven-track tape is another you know terrible medium. It's sort of read once and the tape is all gone, the oxide is gone. Uh, but these other media aren't very much better. Uh, if you can't, if the bits are still on the on the five and a quarter inch floppy or the three and a half inch floppy, uh, you may still not be able to find a reader to read the bits, a physical device to read them. I bought a um, three and a half inch floppy disk drive. Uh, from uh, eBay not too long ago because I had found a bunch of three and a quarter inch floppy disks and I wondered, I wonder what's on them. So I plugged it into my Mac and my God, it actually read the files. You know, I got a little directory that came up and uh, they were all word perfect files. Uh, 
Well, I didn't have a word-perfect processor or you know, application to run on the Mac of the day. Um, I suppose, I don't know, there's probably some translation thing that's around on the net somewhere. Uh, but that leads to the other problem. It's not just the medium that's the issue, it's also the software that is needed to correctly interpret the format of the bits that you carefully hung on to. So think of how many cycles we've gone through with PowerPoint and spreadsheets and you know, other kinds <coughs> of uh, word processing documents. Um, often backward compatibility is not readily available. And so I remember taking a 1997 PowerPoint file and trying to feed it to a, a 2019 or something uh, Microsoft PowerPoint uh, program. And this is not intended as, a, as an, a gratuitous dig at Microsoft. Backward compatibility over 20 years or something is very unusual. It's very hard to do, especially if you're adding new functionality and features over time. So in this particular case, basically the software said, what's this? And, you know, and I, I was sort of tempted to say, it's a PowerPoint file, you dumbass. And, uh, and, and it's possible I even did say that, come to think of it. Um, but, but the idea that I didn't have available to me an old version that would correctly understand the bits of that file was really very disturbing. So over time, I've come to the belief that we really should start thinking about regimes that can preserve digital content over really long periods of time, hundreds of years, which is often beyond the lifetime of any one company. So when you start thinking about what the uh, issues are, some of them are technical, uh, for example, if I have a file and it was created by a piece of software that is not running today uh, and there's no machine, no physical hardware that could run that software, should I be designing virtual machines that look like the old hardware so they can essentially boot up an old operating system and then load the application and then correctly interpret the file? It turns out that's feasible. There's a, a group at Carnegie Mellon that did this uh, some time ago. There's a program was called Olive, like the thing you put in your martini glass. Uh, basically, they could download uh, or they would emulate a piece of hardware, like an IBM PC, and they could then download DOS 3.1, and they could then load an application, and you could play a game or run the application. There was a very funny result uh, the emulations ran faster than the original hardware did, and so you had to artificially slow it down for, if you were playing a game, otherwise the machine would beat you, you know, in 30 milliseconds. But they demonstrated the feasibility of, of doing this, and so uh, I could easily imagine companies like Google and others with virtual machines as part of their normal complement of, uh, of operation uh, to create these older machines that could run old operating systems. Then comes the interesting legal question, which you and I chatted about earlier today, and that's the question of who has the right to run the old software? What if you didn't actually own it? So imagine you're an archive. You're a place where people bring their digital stuff, and they ask you, please preserve it. And so things show up with all kinds of origins of you know, which operating system and which hardware and, and which applications. Um, and often they don't show up with all kinds of rights to use anything. They just say, I, you know, I had rights to use this program 25 or 30 years ago. Here's my digital object that I created. Would you please hang on to it? So figuring out how to create a legal regime where it's okay for the archive to be able to run old operating systems and old software 
would be very important if they are going to be responsible for serving up old content, old digital content. Uh, and then making this economic is another interesting challenge. I mean, how can you make sure that if someone says, I want to preserve this, that there is a way to underwrite the cost of preserving it for you know, 50 or 100 or 200 or more years? Um, so insurance comes up as an example of, of a, one kind of business model. Life insurance is something you keep paying for until you're dead. That's not very many products have that property to them. And so imagine having digital insurance uh, or data insurance where you pay a premium so that at the point where you do pass on, the digital content that you wanted to preserve can be, uh, uh, it can be afforded uh, or affordable to preserve it because you've been paying premiums for the purpose of building up this, uh, uh, what, what's the right word for that, endowment. Um, to pay for the continued existence of that software, and maybe the, uh, the digital information and the software needed in order to access it. And you can imagine why people might want to do that. Somebody estimated that in 2019, 1.7 trillion photographs were taken with people with mobiles. And people are assuming that they'll just be there forever, because after all, they're right there on your mobile, and you can show them to your friends what's the problem. Well, maybe 10 years from now, not so clear or 100 years from now, you know, what about your ancestors? Um, so I keep thinking that each of us who believes that they have content that should be preserved will have the potential for doing that, that there is a place to turn to do that. And there are some places, of course, where it's required. I mean, think about your national archives, just like ours in the US. It is a requirement that they preserve content from administrations over, over time. So having a technical way to do that, having a, a business model that supports the ability to do that, and having legal frameworks that permit use of software is exactly what we need and don't have. So I have met now with the British Library, with the, uh, with the um, Bodleian, the head of the Bodleian Library, uh, is um, very interested in this particular problem of digital preservation. The National Archives is interested in this. A number of other, even private concerns like uh, Preservica is another company that makes a business out of this. So uh, it's starting to become more visible, but I think the general users, you and me, uh, are not yet well served uh, with products that will assure that our, uh, our data will be available to our descendants if we want them to, to have access to it. Now, some people have said, well, it doesn't matter that uh, we try to preserve everything. Not everything is worth preserving. I'm sure we would all agree that there are tweets that could disappear and we wouldn't mind um, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but it's not always clear what's important from the historical point of view. And so I remember in a, having a discussion with a group of librarians in a room like this a few years ago when um, some young fellow got up and said, this isn't a problem, the important stuff will be copied and trans translated into different formats and the unimportant stuff will go away and no one will care. And it took about a half an hour to get the librarians off the ceiling because they were saying, you don't know what's important. You don't know whether that email or this particular spreadsheet or that photograph 
was key to understanding some event that took place in history, and that we should understand that. And sometimes it takes a couple of hundred years before you actually realize how important that particular topic was. So we need to make sure that there are technologies available to do this, even if we aren't always sure which information should be preserved. Preservation by accident is not a plan. <laughs>